Thank you for downloading this episode of our podcast. Hi, and welcome to the podcast for Solomon Staircase Masonic Lodge number 357, where we talk about all things related with Freemasonry, including hermetic teachings, philosophy, reason, spirituality, and much more. We're located in Buena Park, Southern California. Tune in as we continue to update our podcast with informative talks and articles for Masons worldwide and those who would like to inquire within. So with all the craziness going on in the world today, I thought we would continue to share some stories on how Masons have helped in times of need. This next article is from the April-May 2013 California Freemason magazine and is titled Masonic Charity, A Historical Perspective. It's written by John L. Cooper III. He was the deputy grandmaster at the time. He is now a past grandmaster. The fraternal commitment to relief has defined the institution of Freemasonry. Each year, the United Grand Lodge of England selects a prominent Mason to be the Prestonian lecturer for the year, fulfilling the wishes of William Preston, the author of our Masonic Ritual Lectures, who left money in his estate for some well-informed Mason to deliver annually a lecture on the first, second, or third degree of the Order of Masonry according to the system practiced in the Lodge of Antiquity during his mastership. In 1993, the Prestonian lecturer was Brother John Hamill, a prominent Masonic scholar who chose as his topic Masonic Charity. Brother Hamill made several important observations in his lecture, and I want to share some of them with you. Our early brethren understood relief to mean the alleviating of the suffering of a brother or the dependence of a deceased brother by giving money or sustenance until circumstances improved. In modern times, we see relief in its wider context of charity, that it is not simply providing money to relieve distress, but actually caring and giving of our time and talents in the service of our communities as a whole, and not just to our brethren or their dependents. Brother Hamill reminds us that one of the earliest tasks undertaken by the new Grand Lodge in 1717 was the creation of a central charity fund for use by the lodges. In 1727, the first charity fund beyond that of an individual lodge was created. A committee was established to dispense charity from this fund, and its treasurer was named Grand Treasurer, the first use of this title. The committee received requests for assistance and could grant up to five guineas without a vote of Grand Lodge for the relief of a distressed brother, his wife, widow, or orphans. This was a generous gift for those in need. Economic historians have painted a bleak picture of poverty in the 18th century England. The bottom 20% of the population were deemed the very poor, and their lives were ones of daily misery. Local churches or parishes were responsible for poor relief, and only the old and disabled were entitled. Children whose parents were too poor to support them were sent to work for free as apprentices. A law of 1697 required anyone receiving public assistance to wear a blue or red P for pauper on their clothes. Those who were able to work but could not find work were whipped for refusing to take non-existent jobs. It is estimated that during the first half of the 18th century, half the population lived at the subsistence level, barely able to find enough money to stay alive. It is against this background that the earliest Masonic charity needs to be seen. Masons in the 18th century had inherited the practice of helping their most needy members from the operative stonemason days of the Middle Ages. By the time the charity committee had come into existence in 1727, the nature of charity had changed from simply taking care of a brother and his family on a building site to the actual giving of money to help out those in need. 
and such charity was generous by the standards of the day. Freemasons did not treat their less fortunate brethren as social outcasts. They did not beat a member who could not find work to support his family. They did not sell the children of a member of the lodge to work almost as slave labor for an unscrupulous employer. And they did not require those who were recipients of Masonic charity to wear a letter designating them as paupers. What Masonic charity did was to treat those less fortunate as friends and brothers, an unheard of idea in the early 18th century. Brother Hamill points out in his Prestonian lecture that Masonic charity is so important that it can almost be considered a landmark. If we define a landmark as being something in Freemasonry, which if it were removed, its removal would materially alter the essence of our institution, then charity is certainly a landmark. Without the second of its three grand principles, Freemasonry would be a different organization. The practice of charity may truly be said to be a landmark. For if it were removed from Freemasonry, its removal would materially alter the very nature of our institution. The words of William Preston are still heard by every entered apprentice as he begins his journey into Freemasonry. To relieve the distressed is a duty incumbent on all men, but particularly on Masons, who are linked together by an indissoluble chain of sincere affection. To soothe the unhappy, to sympathize with their misfortunes, to compassionate their miseries, and to restore peace to their troubled minds is the great aim we have in view. On this basis, we form our friendships and establish our connections. This next article is from the same issue of California Freemason. That's April-May 2013. And this one's going to give us a little bit more information about the cholera epidemic that we talked about uh, in a prior issue. Relief at all costs. One of California's earliest lodges sacrificed everything for its members and community by Tanya Rohan. Every Mason learns the importance of relief during the course of his initiation. It is, after all, one of the three guiding principles of the fraternity. From making charitable gifts to providing aid in crises of health and natural disaster, Freemasonry's spirit of generosity is well documented. What may not be known, though, is just how far some brothers have gone to uphold it like Sacramento's Jennings Lodge No. 4, which spent itself out of existence while helping victims of the 1850 cholera epidemic. From New Jersey to the New Frontier In 1849, a group of Masons gathered at a train station in Newark, New Jersey. The gold rush had reached fever pitch, and like so many men at the time, they headed west to find their fortune. With them, they carried a dispensation from the Grand Lodge of New Jersey to form a new lodge in California. This new lodge, known at the time as New Jersey Lodge UD, helped pave the way for Freemasonry in California. It was among the first in Sacramento and the fourth ever in California, forming even before the establishment of the state's Grand Lodge. It acted under dispensation until 1850 when it joined the Grand Lodge of California under the name of Berryman Lodge No. 4. A few weeks later, it became Jennings Lodge No. 4. The lodge acquired its name from Berryman Jennings, its first senior warden and an early master. Jennings was raised in Des Moines Lodge No. 1 in Burlington, Iowa. Born in Kentucky, he was an enthusiastic mason and a benevolent man, making many contributions to the communities to which he belonged. He was Iowa's first schoolmaster in that state's first school. He was also a member of the convention that organized the Grand Lodge of California, the state's first grand treasurer, and Oregon's first grand master. And he gave generously to his namesake lodge in its time of need. Like wind to fire. Just as Freemasonry was gaining ground, and some lucky men were striking gold in California, a deadly cholera epidemic was sweeping the land. 
a bacterial infection of the small intestine, cholera spread easily, especially where sanitation conditions were poor, as they often were in mining camps. Those who were infected suffered from high fevers, diarrhea, vomiting, and dehydration, and they died quickly, often within a day of the appearance of symptoms. This lethal strain was spreading quickly, helped along by the mad dash to gold country. Historian George Grow wrote, The gold rush was to cholera like wind to fire. No one is exactly sure when cholera reached Sacramento, nor the specific path from which it came. Most likely, it had multiple entry points. And what we do know is that by the time California achieved statehood, it had very much arrived. In Cholera in the Time of Gold, Pete Ahrens writes, Associated with the glorious intelligence of our admission into the great confederation of states was the sad assurance that a most malignant cholera was sweeping on towards California, and that the passengers of the very steamer that brought the news had many of them fallen victims to this terrific scourge. In one year, between 900 and 1,500 people died of cholera in Sacramento, a staggering 15 to 25 percent of the city's population of 6,000 at the time. The Price of Relief it was a trying time in Sacramento. The rapidly advancing disease and the aggression with which it struck its victims elicited widespread panic. Many of Sacramento's inhabitants fled, hoping to save themselves. By some reports, the city's population was reduced to one-fifth of its size in a matter of months. To help those afflicted with the disease, Jennings Lodge, along with Tehama Lodge No. 3 and Sutter Lodge No. 6, teamed up with the Odd Fellows to erect a hospital. Despite the hospital's all-volunteer administration and a number of benefit events the Masons and Oddfellows staged to raise public funds to support the hospital, it was a costly undertaking, according to Edwin A. Sherman in 50 Years of Masonry in California. The three lodges, with a total membership of only 69, had dispersed in charity in support of the Masonic and Oddfellows Relief Hospital at Sutter's Fort and incurred an indebtedness of $31,436.14 or at the rate of $10,478.72 for each lodge and an average of $455.60 to each member. Unfortunately for Jennings Lodge, this act of charity was the beginning of the end. The lodge had nothing left to cover its operating expenses, let alone its continuing extraordinary relief efforts. As a result, it had incurred an insurmountable $14,000 debt. Additionally, it owed $3,949 for lumber and materials used in building the lodge room the previous year. When his lodge was unable to pay back that loan, Brother Jennings personally picked up the tab, and the brothers promised to pay him back at an interest rate of 10% per month. But when the loan came to term and terms and Jennings tried to collect on it, they were already so saddled with debt that they were unable to pay him back. By 1853, Jennings Lodge was no longer financially viable. Although it was the largest lodge in Sacramento, it relinquished its charter to the Grand Lodge, handed over its furniture to nearby lodges, and gave its jewels to the current master as a token of appreciation. Despite a less than ideal outcome, the efforts of Jennings Lodge demonstrate the importance of relief to the fraternity. The benevolence of this lodge at one of the most difficult times in California history demonstrates that for Freemasons, charity comes first, before self-preservation and personal gain. This next article is actually the feature article for the April-May 2013 California Freemason, and it's called Reading to Sophia. How California Masons, Raising a Reader, a Special School, and Two Dedicated Parents Brought the Joy of Reading to One Young Girl, by Heather Borner. Books have not been easy for Sophia Gonzalez. 
The San Diego kindergartner has classic autism, which means that at six, she is still learning to carry on conversations and has a hard time associating objects with the words used to describe them. So when Sophia was two, she couldn't do a lot of most toddlers could. She couldn't point to the apple or the cupcake in Eric Carle's children's story, The Very Hungry Caterpillar, as her mother, Patty Gonzalez, read it aloud. Sophia could look at the pictures, or she could engage with the story, but she couldn't do both at once. Then Gonzalez had an idea, to give Sophia a job. Gonzalez photocopied every illustration in the book and had the objects laminated and pasted with Velcro. While Gonzalez read, her daughter could stick an apple on the apple, the cupcake on the cupcake, and so forth. It took a lot of repetition for Sophia to get the hang of it, but she finally grasped the basics of reading. That's why it's so special to us that now, Sophia comes home with a book bag and at bedtime she says, These are my books. I want to read this book again, explains Gonzalez. That first time she said this, my husband and I realized, look how far we've come. Sophia's progress is in no small part due to the Raising a Reader Literacy Program and to the California Masonic Foundation, which brought the program to her school. Since January 2012, some 2,500 California students can say the same, and that number is rising. The fraternity is on track to raise $1.2 million over three years, bringing Raising a Reader to communities across California and 50,000 children throughout the state. Family tops all other influences in a child's educational success. Take, for example, a child whose parents have high school diplomas and a child whose parents do not. Typically, there would be a wide achievement gap between these two children. But a Harvard study showed that as long as the second set of parents, those without the diplomas, were engaged in their child's education from kindergarten through third grade, that achievement gap was completely eliminated. Parent involvement trumps any disadvantages. Sophia's parents intuitively knew this. Many other parents, more than one might imagine, do not. For the majority of the students with a red Raising a Reader book bag, that's been the true game changer. Making a profound impact. Many programs pump books into student hands. Fewer account for what happens next when the child brings these books home. Do the books sit untouched in a corner? Do the children know how to use them? Do the parents? Gabriel Miller is Raising a Reader's National Executive Director. Not all families realize the importance of reading, she explains. Many don't have the economic resources to have books in the home. They may not have the resources to drive in the car to the library to borrow books. Maybe they're intimidated by the library. When children bring books home, parents need to know what to do with these books. You need to provide the kind of support that families need. When raising a reader enters a school, a few things enter with it. One is a collection of red book bags. These are for the students. Another is a team of trainers. The trainers are for the parents, not the teachers or the students. In two, three, or four trainings, parents learn the basics of language and literacy development. They see an example of how a child's brain becomes active and grows when they share books at home. They learn simple ways to do this, even if they themselves can't read or are not fluent in English. They learn why these activities are so important and how the positive effects will ripple throughout the child's entire life. At our heart, what Raising a Reader is really doing is getting families to set routines around reading together, says Georgianne Morin, Senior Director of Programs, West Coast. This is a precursor to homework. If families are already used to reading with their children every evening, it will become a natural extension to check on homework at night when those children reach upper grade levels. It's simple cause and effect. Family engagement affects academic success. In study after study, parents who have been through raising a reader spend significantly more time reading with their child and building literacy skills at home. As a direct effect, their children show remarkable gains in school. 
California Masons are driving the bus on raising a reader in California public schools. They climbed beyond the wheel two years ago when the foundation went in search of a program that would lay the groundwork for not just literacy, but lifelong learning. Raising a Reader emerged as the clear answer. To spread Raising a Reader's program through the state, committees of Masons called Public School Advisory Councils have convened in San Diego, San Francisco, the Bay Area South Bay, Orange County, the Inland Empire, and the Pasadena Glendale Burbank area to raise funds, identify schools, hold Public Schools Month kickoff celebrations, and work on strengthening the Foundation's larger commitment to bolster California's public education system. Masons outside of these areas who want to be involved have been encouraged to do what they can in their communities to promote literacy, up to and including raising enough money to bring Raising a Reader to their towns without council support. Vesper Lodge Number 84 in Red Bluff is the first that has done so. I hear people talking about family engagement, but I don't often see them adapt what they're doing, Miller says. The Masons are adapting. They're building a long-term system around it. They're making an investment. Saving Ourselves Central Elementary School is a Title I school, which means that 100% of her students live at or below the poverty line. The neighborhood where Central is located, San Diego City Heights, is hemmed in on the west and south by freeways. 80% of the residents are renters, and 44% are foreign-born, hailing from locales as disparate as Vietnam, Somalia, and Mexico. And just about all the students swing by the school's nurse office at lunchtime in search of a new pair of shoes or a winter coat. Cynthia Martin is the principal here. Martin spent seven years at her previous school as a credentialed reading specialist. She knows how to deconstruct the children's book to discern how its components work together to deliver a meaningful family literacy moment or not. When it comes to family engagement, programs have to be short on moralizing and long on tools for parents. I haven't, in my 23 years as an educator, met a parent who doesn't care about their child, Martin says. Parents may come to school under the influence, they may be incarcerated, deported, or completely disassociated from their children, but even the most detached parent cares. In fact, the parents with the biggest struggles often care the most. They recognize that they've made mistakes and they want a better life for their children. The leadership of the foundation and some local Masons came through the school to talk to Martin about bringing Raising a Reader to her classrooms. We want the same thing you do, she remembers one brother telling her. We want to be part of your mission. So these days, Central Elementary students have a new favorite ritual. Every week, little red book bags, branded with the Masons of California Raising a Readership Partnership logo, arrive in their classroom. The bags contain a different set of books each week, all selected according to students' age and development level. There is also a DVD for parents, reinforcing the in-person training on how to use the books with their children. The DVDs came in a variety of languages to reflect the diverse backgrounds of Central families. Vietnamese, Spanish, English, and even Arabic. You can read a story together, even if you can't read the words on the page, Martin says. If a story is about making tortillas, a parent can remember how her grandma made more tortillas and tell stories about that. What Raising a Reader has allowed her students' families to do is engage with books in ways they hadn't before. The program has given them the tools to figure out how. When we saturate our communities with high-quality books and give parents who want to show they care the tools to illustrate that, we empower families to be strong families, Martin explains. For a lot of our families, if you give them $5, they won't use the money to buy a book. But if you put a book in their hand and say, read this, you have a real tool. And that means that parents and teachers can work together to create an environment that fosters integrated, lifelong learning. Our job at school is to teach children how to read, Martin says. The job at home is to teach them to love to read. Sophia's School Bus 
By the time Sophia got her hands on her first red book bag, she was far past the stage of attaching Velcro illustrations to her books in order to understand the fundamental purpose of reading. She could follow along with what her mom was reading to her, but she hadn't really loved a book yet, says Gonzalez. This was a disappointment to Gonzalez. She and her husband, Sergio, loved to read and wanted to pass that love on to their daughter. Sophia's father, a hotel room service attendant, loves autobiographies. Gonzalez, a professional assistant in financial services, calls herself Sophia's autism case manager and spends all her free time reading anything to do with Sophia's condition. Because of all this, Sophia has had a leg up on the family engagement piece of the Raising a Reader program. But due to autism, she also faces challenges that a typical Raising a Reader student does not. Even for her, the program has been a breakthrough. When Sophia read books before, she liked them, but she'd never really fallen in love with a book. A book had yet to fully capture her imagination. She was much more apt to play with her favorite doll or to run over to a neighbor's house to play on the Wii or with Legos. So when Sophia appeared at home with her little fingers on the strap of a red book bag, Gonzalez knew something special was going on. She's taken so much ownership of the books, says Gonzalez. She says, look, Mom, we're going to read my books now. I think it's different from what we normally do because it's not always books coming from Mom and Dad. The school has introduced her to books and presented them in such a way that she can take pride in reading. Then there was the day that Sophia came home from school and settled into her normal nighttime routine. She took a bath, put on her jammies, then got ready for a bedtime story read by Gonzalez. But the book she wanted to read, a Raising a Reader selection called The Little School Bus, wasn't there. Its week in Sophia's book bag had come to an end and it had been switched out for a replacement. Sophia was alarmed and then upset. She'd been asking Gonzalez to read the book to her twice a night for the past week. The next day, Gonzalez called Sophia's teacher. I think I need you to give me the same set of books we had last time, she said. Sophia just loves that book. They did get the book back for a short time, but it's been gone a while now and Sophia still asks for it. Gonzalez has even approached Barton with her wonder at how engaged Sophia is now with her books. I told Cindy that I feel like writing a letter to the Masons explaining how great this program has been for our daughter, she says. Sophia isn't reading yet, but if she's willing to bring us the book and engage with us with it, we have hope that later on, when she can, she'll be the one reading to us. Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a comment. We enjoy hearing from our listeners. If you really like what you heard, share this podcast with your friends and lodge members. Visit us online at solomonstaircase.org.